about five years ago or so, uh, my family and I went to Haiti for the summer. We lived there for three months, and it was my job to help the North Americans who were coming uh, every week, about two to 300 of them, to process their time in the country. We would meet every night and we would debrief, and this happened nearly every week, multiple times a week. The people would begin to verbalize and articulate the fact that the nation of Haiti and the Haitians themselves were a blessing to the North Americans instead of the North Americans feeling like they were a blessing to the Haitians. They would say things like, we thought we were coming here to bless them, and, but they blessed us. We, we came here thinking we were going to teach them or to reach them, but they have taught us and they have served us. What they were saying was, we were learning an unlikely lesson from an unlikely source. They thought, man, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. The Haitians are supposed to be blessed by us, but we are the ones learning contentment from them. We're, we're learning what it means to, to live on little from them. You see, country of Haiti is a third world country. They live on less than a dollar a day. And these North Americans come in and thinking that having a little something might be a blessing to the Haitians, but they've learned to be content, especially those that are put their faith and trust in Jesus. And it was just amazing to watch that. Have you ever learned a lesson from an unlikely source? I've learned them from my kids before. I learned them from the Haitians. I've learned them in different places where I didn't think I was going to learn something from the person I learned it from. Today in Mark chapter five, I think we're gonna get something similar. There's an unlikely source in here that's gonna teach us a, an incredible lesson about faith. I'm going to start reading in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. It says, When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. Now, Mark chapter 5, the earlier parts of it, it says that Jesus was at the Gesserines and that he was casting out demons from this man who was living among the tombs. And he cast out these demons into 2,000 pigs and the pigs run off the side of the cliff and says, so now we know that Jesus is crossing back over the sea and he's getting to this large crowd of, of people. Verse 22, one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Now, I want to stop there because Mark doesn't name a lot of people in his gospel, and he doesn't give us a lot of detail like synagogue leader, and so this is important. Matter of fact, if we were reading this, we might be thinking we're going to learn something from Jairus because he is a Jewish higher up. He's a synagogue leader. He's got some spiritual authority. Matter of fact, he's even named and so we, we have this guy who probably would have functioned a lot like uh, Mike Funderburk, one of our worship pastors here at Radius Church. He organizes our services for us. He, he, he makes sure the songs go along with the sermon and when we'll, when we'll have a time of prayer. He organizes all of that and sends it out to us. That's what a synagogue leader would have done. That's what Jairus would have done. He would have made sure that the prayer times lined up with the scrolls and that the scroll was procured and who was going to read it and, and when the people were going to do what in the service. He was actually also responsible for maintenance and, and just the overall care of the synagogue. He would have been a well-respected man 
And here we have him coming to Jesus and falling at his feet. Why does he do that? He says in verse 23, he kept begging him, Jesus, and he says, my little daughter is at death's door. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So he's coming to Jesus because his daughter, who we're going to find out in just a moment, is only 12 years old, and apparently she is near death. She is fixing to die. She is knocking on death's door, so the idiom goes. And she's begging that Jesus, he's begging, Jesus, if you will come and lay your hands on her, she'll live. What is the response of Jesus? In verse 24, so Jesus went with him. And a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Jesus has compassion. He looks at Jairus and says, okay, you're begging me. You've got a 12-year-old daughter who's, who's fixing to die. I'm coming with you. And it looks like Jesus is on his way. And then all of a sudden, something happens. We have this large crowd pressing around them. And it says in verse 25, a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors and she had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. And on the contrary, she had become worse. Now, all of the sudden, you think you're following the story of Jairus and his 12-year-old daughter and that Jesus is headed to his house to lay hands on her and to heal her. And now, all of a sudden, we have this crowd and the, a woman is introduced and this woman is, has a bleeding problem. And she's been having this bleeding problem for 12 years. But just to show you how dire the situation is, we have this string of participles that are, that are clear to show that she's suffering, she is endured, she is bleeding, she spent everything she has, and she is only getting worse. In the same way that Jairus is begging Jesus to, to help him that his daughter is at the, the, the door of death at, this woman here is saying, I've done it all. I've exhausted my resources. I've gone to everyone who she knew who could help. And instead of getting better, she has gotten worse. She's probably, most commentators would say, has some sort of bleeding that relates to a hemorrhage with her menstrual cycle. We're not real sure, but it's clearly something that's painful to her and that has endured a very long time. Matter of fact, she's had it as long as this Young girl that's sick, Jairus' daughter, as long as she's alive. What happens? It says in verse 27, Having heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his robe. For she said, if I can just touch his robes, I'll be made well. So she hears about Jesus and who hasn't heard about Jesus at this point, right? I mean, we're five and a half chapters in, we've got, we've got Jesus casting out demons. We've got him healing a paralytic. We've got him healing a leper. We've got him taking a withered man's hand and outstretching it. We've got him doing some crazy teaching of parables. He has done some amazing things. He's calmed the wind and the storm and clearly news has traveled about him. And so she has heard and she thinks, I need to get to that place. And she is wiggling her way through the crowd with the hopes and the intent of touching Jesus. And we've seen this before in Mark chapter three that it says there was such a crowd around him that the, the people were hoping to just touch him and potentially be, be healed. I don't know if that brings a question to your mind or not, but it brings one to mind. It's, it's the idea of saying, did everyone who touched Jesus 
Were they all healed? Did they all find that, that healing? I'm going to answer no. And, and I think I can say that pretty confidently from the passage here in a moment. But most of us, when we think about crowds gathering around Jesus, we, we probably don't have much of a frame of reference for that. I mean, if you were to think about someone famous eating at the same restaurant as you, most of the time, instead of all of us getting up and bum rushing them and getting around them in a crowd, we feel like we would have better social etiquette by trying to be incognito by looking at our person standing next to us and saying, oh, I think that's such and such. Or, or maybe we might pull out a phone and try to discreetly take a picture. We wouldn't flock around them. I did see this one time. I don't know, it was about 15 years ago. I went to Ahmedabad, India. I went there because I was pastor at a small Baptist church and we were supporting a missionary in India and that missionary's mother was a member of the church I was pastoring. She was in her mid-70s, uh, looked like the, the prototypical, stereotypical grandmother, had a hair, a head full of white hair. And we get on an 18-hour flight, we land in Ahmedabad, and as we are there for, I don't know, 10 to 12 days, supporting this missionary, encouraging her son, everywhere she went, there was a crowd of people around her. I mean, 10 or 20 people, old, young, it didn't matter, they were touching her skin, they wanted to reach up and touch that white hair. I asked some of the, the, the folks that were with us who were indig indigenous to the place. I said, what are they doing? Why, why are they following her like that everywhere we go? And they said, we don't see very many people that live to that age. And we sure don't see very many people who have that white hair. They were gathered around trying to get the aura of this woman like it was somehow superstitious. If they could touch her skin, maybe they would have long life. If they could touch her hair, maybe they would have long life and have gray or white hair. They, they were hoping to have that. And we don't really think about it a whole lot because the average age here in the States is, you know, 70 some odd years old. But in Omnibod, people were dying on the streets. It wouldn't be uncommon to drive by people and just seeing them laying there and you weren't sure if they were asleep or if they were, if they were dead. So they were gathered around with the hopes of just catching a little aura of this person who's had a long life. Same thing would have happened in the first century and even beyond that. Uh, uh, there's Historians who said people gathered around Alexander the Great in much the same way. These throngs of people would get close to touch him and, and hope that the aura of his power and his, his, his strength would come over them almost in a superstitious way. And there's not a doubt in my mind that's happening with Jesus as well, that there are some folks who are just hoping to have a little of his aura, whatever that is, in some superstitious way that his power would come over them. But that's not true of this woman. She's not here for some mystical aura. She's here because she thinks Jesus is not just a famous person or a powerful person. Apparently she thinks he must be a representative of God and she wants to touch him. And when she does, look at what happens. Verse 29 says, instantly her flow of blood ceased and she sensed in her body that she was cured of her affliction. 
Lots of people were touching Jesus, but this woman felt like the, the, the blood was gone. This, this complete hemorrhage was healed. She felt it in her. She says she felt that she was cured of her affliction. That word affliction is incredibly important. Jesus is going to use it. It's the Greek word for horse whipping, lashing. This isn't just suffering. This isn't just disease. This isn't just being uncomfortable. Mark says she is afflicted. She's being horsewhipped, horsewhipped physically, horsewhipped emotionally. She feels the shame of it. And it says the minute that she touches it, her, her blood flow is stopped. And this affliction, this horsewhipping ends. Powerful language. Verse 30. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowds and said, who touched my robes? He knows it. Something has happened. This isn't the normal pressing against Jesus, the normal touching of Jesus. Like something special happened here. Verse 31, the disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you and you say, who touched me? That's why I think that not everybody that touched Jesus was healed. But this Jesus, this person was. She touched Jesus and was healed. And then something crazy is going to happen. Verse 32. So he, Jesus, was looking around to see who did this. We know immediately when he felt it, the text says he turned around. And as he turned around, he knew someone had touched him on the back, on the back of his robe. And that's what the woman did. She was trying to sneak in, get a touch. And I think she was trying to sneak out. And then when Jesus says, who touched me? Verse 33, it says, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came with fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. The whole truth. This woman comes with fear and trembling. And I don't think the fear and trembling is awe and reverence this time. I think the fear and trembling is She's scared. I think she was really wanting just to kind of be this anonymous person that was going with the crowd, got the touch, felt the healing. And I think she was then sneaking out while the crowd was coming to Jesus. She was trying to get away from him. And when Jesus said, who touched me? She stopped, froze in her tracks and knew she was fixing to have to face him. That's not what she wanted. And then it says she told the whole truth. This is what she was going to have to tell Jesus. This is what she was going to have to tell the whole crowd. She was going to have to tell the whole crowd that I've been bleeding for 12 years. Can you imagine the embarrassment of that? Can you imagine saying that to the crowd? The whole truth, that's what it says. She doesn't hold any of it back. She says, I've been bleeding for 12 years and Jesus, I was just really hoping that I could come in and get a touch. I've gone to doctors, doctors couldn't do anything. Matter of fact, it's only getting worse. That's the whole truth, isn't it? It's only getting worse. When she says she's been bleeding for 12 years, she's not just saying I have an affliction and I have a disease. She's saying, I'm unclean. You see, if you 
just, just a regular menstrual cycle of a woman would have deemed her unclean for a period of days. But to be bleeding for 12 years would have mean this woman would have been deemed unclean for 12 years. And she's telling that to everyone. And with that, she would also be saying, I shouldn't be in public. And I sure shouldn't be touching people because whoever I touch would also be deemed unclean. That's the whole truth. That's why she's scared. She's already got this horse whipping blood issue. And now she's got shame as she declares it to everyone. By the way, this is just for free. It's amazing how much unclean shows up in Mark chapter five. Unclean spirit in an unclean place, the tombs. And Jesus is touched by an unclean woman. And spoiler alert, Jairus, remember the guy we met earlier? His daughter's fixing to die and Jesus is gonna touch her and a dead body would have been unclean. Maybe Jesus is trying to show us that he does bring cleanliness and restoration. So now what is Jesus gonna say? She tells the whole truth. She comes clean and says, that's who I am. I, I, I have done this. Jesus' words in verse 43, 34. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be free from your affliction, your horse whipping, your shame. Go in peace, be free of it. I love that he calls her daughter. I love that he says, you have told the whole truth and you are unnamed, you are unknown, you are unclean, but he claims her, he heals her. He says, you're mine. And I don't think this word daughter is used lightly because there's a man standing next to him who was just begging that Jesus would come heal his daughter. Fascinating, isn't it? Jesus says those words and while he was speaking, verse 35, it says, people came from the synagogue leader's house, Jairus' house and said, your daughter is dead. So Jesus is looking at her and saying, daughter, be free. Your faith has healed you. While he's saying this, the, the people who were at Jairus' house come and say, oh man, we're sorry, your daughter, she, she's died. And then they say this, why bother the teacher anymore? Don't, don't trouble him anymore. There, there's no need for him to come. It, it's over. It's done. And look at the words of Jesus, verse 36. But when Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, Jairus, don't be afraid. That's the exact same thing that the woman was. Fear and trembling. He says, don't be afraid. Only believe. Just believe. The word belief and the word faith in verse 34 are the same word. It's the word faith. It's the word pistis or pistuo, faith. He looks at the man and says, just have faith. 
Now, I'm, I'm listening to that 2,000 years later, and we have used that phrase <laughs> terribly, haven't we? We tell people that all the time. Oh, just have faith. What does that mean? I mean, we put it on shirts, we put it on mugs, we, we talk about it, we sing about it, have faith. What in the world is have faith? What did Jairus need to know when Jesus says, just have faith, just believe? What is he saying here? I think Jesus is, is telling Jairus this. I need you to trust me. That's what faith means, right? Trust. I need you to trust me. Just, just trust me. But I think it means more than trust, too. The word pistis or pistuo means confidence as well. I think he's looking at Jairus and saying, have confidence in me. Have confidence in me. But I think it means more than that, too. I think it means trust me and have confidence in me even in a situ situation of duress. Have confidence and trust in a situation of duress. And that's exactly what the unnamed woman just did. She trusted Jesus when her situation became stressful and under duress. Remember, She's just wanting to sneak out. She's just wanting to touch and get out. She's healed and Jesus turns around and says, who touches me? And instead of keeping on walking, instead of ignoring him, she turns around and she trusts him with the whole truth. She puts her confidence in him and, and says, I am unclean. And yes, I touched you. And yes, I have this affliction. And yes, I've been bleeding for 12 years. And she says all of that and she trusts him even though she's scared, even though she feels shame. She trusts him in a situation of duress. And I think Jesus is wanting Jairus, the synagogue leader. You see how many times it says that in the passage? to learn this lesson from an unlikely source, this unnamed, unknown, unclean woman. And he says, I just told her that her faith, her trust and confidence in me healed her. I need you, Jairus, to do what she did. Trust me. Even when the situation is under duress, and that's what the situation is now, isn't it? His 12-year-old daughter is now not just sick, she is dead. What's Jairus gonna do? Is he gonna look at Jesus and say, oh man, no thanks, man, you're late. You should have you come immediately, but instead you're talking to this lady over here who touched you, big deal. I have this 12-year-old daughter, I'm a synagogue leader. He doesn't say that. He could have. He could have just listened to his buddies who, who told him, hey, don't bother the teacher. And he could say, what use is it, Jesus? She's dead. Like no trust, no confidence that Jesus could do anything about it. But that's not what happens. He's going to trust Jesus. Look at what takes place next. Verse 37. He, Jesus, did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. So he, he narrows the thing down to these three disciples 
and Jairus and his wife. Verse 38. They came to the leader's house. I love how he keeps calling him leader, leader, leader. Just wanting you to feel the tension, right? This guy should know it, but he's going to learn this lesson from this woman. He comes to the leader's house and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. They've already started the process of saying, she died. Jesus went in and said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but asleep. Jesus is using a figure of speech to say, hey, it's not over. It's not done. She, she's not going to stay dead. Verse 40, they started laughing at him, but he put them all outside. You notice Jairus hasn't said a word. He's been quiet. Jesus takes off walking, and I think Jairus walks with him. He trusts him. Jesus gets there and says, she's not dead. She's asleep. And as everybody begins to laugh, and Jesus begins to kick them out, I can imagine them saying, Jairus, what are you letting this man do this for? And I think Jairus is like, I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. I'm trusting Jesus. I know it's crazy, but I'm with Jesus. I got confidence in Jesus. I begged him to come. He came. I am with Jesus. And then it says, after he kicked them all outside in verse 40, he took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him, Peter, James, and John, and he entered the place where the child was. I can imagine Jesus looking at Jairus and looking at Jairus' wife and saying, where is she? And when Jairus points to the room and Jesus starts walking in there, I can imagine Jairus sliding his hand down and grabbing his wife's hand and following Jesus into the room and trusting him. And I can imagine him looking into his wife's eyes and not saying a word, but his wife, his wife seeing in Jairus' eyes that Jairus has confidence in him. So they go into the room. Verse 41, then Jesus took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha koum, which is translated little girl, I say to you, get up. The Aramaic is, is kept here in, the, in our translation. That's what Jesus is speaking. He says these words. Verse 42, immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were utterly astounded. <laughs> the language here in the original means they lost their minds. They were shaken. They couldn't believe it. This girl came back to life. Verse 43, then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and said that she should be given something to eat. Jairus is challenged by Jesus when he says, just trust me. Have confidence in me. I know it's taken a turn for the worse. This is a situation of duress, but will you trust me? And Jairus follows Jesus. 
and he learned it from watching a woman under duress trust Jesus with her story and with her affliction. You know what we call that? When someone is confident and trusts you even when things get bad, you know what we call that? We call that loyalty. In church words, we call it devotion. Like it's one thing to trust Jesus when everything's good. It's devotion and loyalty to trust him when the situation's not good. I mean, think about it. When Jesus stands up in that boat in Mark chapter four and he tells the wind and the waves to be still, what does he ask the disciples next? Why are you still afraid? Do you still not have faith? There it is. Do you not trust me under duress? Do you not have confidence in me when the situation gets tough? Maybe we need to learn from this unnamed, unknown, unclean woman that we put our confidence and our trust in Jesus, not when things are easy, but when things are hard. Devotion, loyalty. I think that's what the woman taught Jairus. Jairus learned his lesson from an unlikely source. So I guess my question for us today is, not how's your faith, how's your devotion? How's your loyalty? Are you trusting and putting your confidence in Christ even under duress? Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I, uh, it is so easy to trust you and to say we have faith in you when, when we're healthy, when things go the way we want them to, when, when our kids are doing well, when, when our job is going exactly the way it should when there's no turmoil or stress in our life, Lord, do we have devotion, faith, trust, confidence, loyalty in you, fidelity to you? When the wind and the waves begin to turn, when, when we have to come clean with the whole truth, when, when the situation takes a turn for the worse, do we trust you? Lord, thanks for this woman who does that. We don't know her name, but we learn what it means to have faith. Lord, help us to learn this lesson today. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.